Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. I'd like to introduce my former coach and my friend and mentor, Dom Starja, to the Philosophy Podcast. Dom, welcome aboard. Really uh, pumped up to have you on here. Jamie, I'm very happy to be here. I'm glad we get a chance to catch up. Uh, it'll, it'll be fun talking about our mutual experiences over the years. Yeah, no doubt. So, all right, first thing, uh, everybody wants to know, what are you up to? Give us the updates on, are you been keeping yourself busy with your writing? And yeah. give us a rundown. In some ways, Jamie, I've been busier than, uh, than, certainly busier than I imagined I would be at this point. And, uh, you know, I serve on the executive board for Harlem Lacrosse, um, I was named the chair of the U.S. Lacrosse Hall of Fame Committee. I do some work for the coaches organization. Uh, this past year, I was the associate head coach for the Cannons and the MLL. Um, that's actually in transition. Uh, uh, I'm in between coaching assignments at the moment. Uh, and then, uh, you know, with all the writing I've been doing and stuff, I've been, I've been plenty busy. You know, in some ways, I feel like maybe I'm overcompensating for you know, feeling like I'm, I'm not ready to hang it up yet, uh, you know, but, uh, but I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I'm doing the things that I enjoy. And I also, the other piece of it that I may enjoy most of all is I get around to different programs to spend different amount, different amounts of time with people. I've been, uh, I flew up to Tufts. Uh, they flew me up to Tufts a couple, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I spent a day with a, with the Tufts uh, men's lacrosse staff and the athletic department, actually. Uh, I was out to Ohio State, Lafayette College. I went up to talk to the James Madison women. I had a long lunch with Acacia Walker, the women's coach at Boston College. Uh, I spent a fair amount of time over Christopher Newport, where one of my former players is. Uh, and so in the cases where that happens to line up with either fall lacrosse or spring lacrosse practice time, I get a chance to get out on the field and uh, – and uh, so I really enjoy that. And uh, yeah. so, uh, yeah, yeah. So it, uh, people call and ask if I'd come and do it. And, uh, and I just say, let's, let's see if we can find something on the schedule that works. And if we do, then, then I make it happen. And uh, it's fun to get out and blow a whistle a little bit. Yeah, no doubt. That's cool. And in the writing piece, I mean, you know, it's funny because I started writing a blog about, I don't know, nine months ago or something like that. And, um, you know, when I was in college and high school, I, I, I always considered it like paper prison, you know, paper jail. If you had to write a paper, you just couldn't get out of it until you finished it. But I actually find writing kind of therapeutic now. Do you feel the same way? I feel, you know, it's funny. I feel absolutely compelled to be doing it at times. Uh, I don't even know where that comes from, you know, relative to, to what you just mentioned. Uh, I'm certainly felt the same way, you know, going through college. But now all of a sudden, uh, these ideas come up. All I get is a little. All I need is a little hook, and then I can, I can write whatever I want. And then I've been, you know, I've been kind of alternating between Inside Lacrosse and Lacrosse Magazine, and they've published everything I've sent to them. Uh, I don't think they've edited a word. Uh, and you know, it's funny between the writing and talking to these college athletes. Uh, you know, sometimes I get paid, but but I don't. It's not a requirement for what I'm doing, and. Uh, it's, it's quite liberating, frankly. Uh, you know, when I talk to the college guys and girls, too, uh, I'm always saying, look, I'm going to tell you things that your college coach can't tell you. Uh, and even in the writing, I, I've been critical of the college coaches in certain circumstances and things like that. Uh, 
you know, I, I kind of feel like, well, I really don't care what you think, you know, and, uh, and uh, so uh, people seem to be enjoying it, and uh, I enjoy doing it, so, uh, so it's been a good outlet for me. It's awesome. Where can people uh, get your, find your blogs? I, Jamie, I don't really have a blog. Uh, what you find your writing? What you need to do is if you go to Inside Lacrosse or Andor Lacrosse Magazine, everything that I've written has been published in either one of those two publications. And uh, just go to those and uh, and go to their little uh, you know uh, info section. Just just click on uh, Stars Here articles, and because uh, I often go back and check to see what I've written or or some material that I've covered and stuff, and they're all they're all included right there. So I would. I would encourage people to go and uh, track them down and it's easy enough. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, this is for coaches. This is for parents. This is for athletes. Um, you really, you know, I've read, I've read them and, and they're awesome. They're enjoyable and they, they're, they're, they're full of great anecdotes, but great messages. So anybody should, uh, that's interested should track those down. So Dom. The Phil Lacrosse podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 13-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. For more information, go to www.jm3academy.thinkific.com. Goes down. So, Dom, the first lacrosse game you ever saw was... The first lacrosse game I ever saw was the first game I played in, uh, which was the Brown University freshman in the spring of 1971 versus Farmingdale Junior College. Uh, and I went into the game. I remember distinctly going into the game thinking I'm going to knock some people down. That was, the, that was my goal in the first game uh, that I ever played in. Uh, and I think I had two assists in the game, actually. Uh, but uh, so I played in the first game I ever saw. You know, and those were the years when – you had to play on freshman teams in your first year in college. And, um, uh, you know, I happened to be the captain of the freshman football team that year, having been recruited to Brown to play football. And a buddy on the football team also played lacrosse and talked me into it. Uh, growing up on Long Island, I had heard of lacrosse, but I'd never seen it. And, uh, and so when I got to Brown and, and began talking to some people about it, about going out for it, uh, I was curious. And, uh, you know, so, and I was somebody that, especially my first year in college, place like Brown. I'm, I was the, I was first generation college student in my family, uh, on both mom and dad's side. And so I was really a little lost socially and academically at Brown in that first semester and most comfortable in the locker room area. And that was also a time when we all, we had two, I'm sure you remember those old buildings at Aldrich Dexter field. Oh, yeah. It was called, there were two universal gyms in the basement of one of those buildings that was the extent of the weight room equipment and all. And uh, so there was no out of season training really and truly. And so uh, um, I was better off staying busy. And so I'm out for lacrosse my freshman year. And I tell people all the time that sounds like I'm making it up, but literally just fell in love with it immediately. Almost to the extent that I feel like the first time I picked up a stick, I felt like, Hey, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, uh, someone in football, even though I was a little bit bigger, um, I never really, you know, looked for the contact part of football. Uh, what I loved was catching the ball and running with the ball. And in lacrosse, I found a sport in which you can just go do it. Just go get it and do it as often as you like. And uh, so it suited, uh, suited who I was and, and suited me athletically. So you got roped in by the creator immediately. Well, you know, I, I don't want to get too sentimental, you know, about the whole thing. But, uh, you know, I also – my – 
my the, one of my closest friends who was a classmate at Brown uh, was a was a Mohawk Indian a fellow by the name of David White lived on the St. Regis Reservation in upstate New York. Uh, I was a history major, so I always liked that. Uh, and I, I immediately became fascinated with the Native American roots of the game. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I had a, I had an, you know, an incredible opportunity to, to experience some of that, you know, getting to know David better and going to spend some time on the reservation. I actually played, I played box lacrosse back in the summer of 72 you know, before it was obviously popular for American kids, I was up on the reservation for a couple of weeks and Dave got me involved playing on, in the box. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, that, that whole spiritual part of the game, uh, um, I, you know, uh, for me in my life, I believe that there's something to it, you know? Uh, and so it's been a very, very important part of it. I tell young players all the time uh, that there's a sense of community in our game that is unique to our sport. Yeah, I believe that. I just, I don't take that for granted. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm still, I still play a little bit up at Lake Placid. It's pathetic what we're actually doing, but uh, <laughs> still enjoy doing it. Still love the game. And, uh, and uh, you know, and so all of those, all of those things, uh, you know, remain, uh, you know, important parts of my life. Well, I don't remember exactly which time it was that I first saw you or met you, but for the listeners, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. I moved to the east side in the summer of 76. I picked up a lacrosse stick, I think, in the spring of 77. Had the same sort of love affair with it that you did. And I just remember seeing these really big dudes with pretty long hair walking down Morris Avenue with lacrosse sticks. Uh, you know, Pete Lasagna was probably the one with the longest hair at the time. But uh but, 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 you know, I just know that when I would go over to the goals at Moses Brown that were a block away, they would all be shredded after you guys, like, would shoot on them. And um, I don't know if it was there or whether it was at some Brown soccer camp or when I got promoted to head ball boy as uh, the Brown soccer uh, ball boy, you know, whether when it was. But it was kind of neat to uh, watch, you know, watch this whole thing as a, as a, as a, as a 10-year-old in Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah, you know, we were actually, you know, uh, um, people don't realize that we had a terrific run of Rhode Island players, you know, early in my in my career, uh, you know, the Tommy Gagnon and Bernie Bonanno and Jamie Monroe and Neil Monroe. And then, uh, you know, there was Gus Bickford, uh, you know, the, and then, you know, to Colin Briggs, who came here to the universe, Chris Rotelli to Colin. Briggs. I mean, it was a it was a incredible run of guys you know that yeah. played at the highest level in college and I think it was probably related to the fact that you know you guys saw way more high level division one lacrosse than most kids growing up I mean for you literally that it was right across the street and so it wasn't even just about coming to the games it was about hanging around these guys all yeah. the time uh, you know so and I would tell you Jamie like I don't really remember you as a camper you know or <laughs> Uh, the the quick story I would tell, I remember your freshman year, though, uh, I was in the training room. I think it was our first game. And I remember uh, it was a couple hours before game time, looking down to the field, and you were down on the game field, literally sprinting from end to end. So two hours before the game, you came up to the locker room area. You were in a full lather, you know. And uh, and so uh, you, you always had great energy and uh, – you know, it was, it was, uh, you know, for you, it was probably learning to channel that a little bit and managing yeah. that uh, and being able to turn that into constructive, 
play, you know, that uh, no doubt. to do with how your career unfolded as anything else. I remember one of my greatest memories of childhood was when they built the AC in the, in the spring of like 82 or something. And all of a sudden there was a, there was a turf on a roof of a huge building with lights on that used to get left on. And we used to just go up there and shoot lacrosse balls, you know, and it was like heaven for us to be able to go up and have nets and lights and turf and oh my gosh I, I when i that i remember that because that was the my it was my first year as a head coach it was the fall of 82 when that building opened and so we had our first fall across practice up there that fall the building had literally just opened and uh we actually had a light pole fall onto the field oh my gosh wow first fall uh, luckily nobody got hurt and all uh while they were working out some of the some of the kinks in that and we had those nets around there to catch all the lacrosse balls that were probably 20 feet high strung on a cable and in Rhode Island where we get uh we can get some extreme weather uh, you know the wind comes in off the water and all uh I'm not sure those nets lasted the first year and then they put up some fencing and then that kind of fell down and then you know for me I had to get used to seeing balls fly over the walls and not lose my mind in my first either the first fall or maybe into that first spring if a guy shot a ball over the wall I used to make him go get it you know yeah. And then he wouldn't return for like 20 minutes. And so uh, I had to get used to balls going over and we'll, maybe we'll look for him after practice and stuff. And, uh, yeah, pretty funny. Yeah, you want um, to adjust, adjusting to your conditions. You, uh, I, you had the opportunity to coach, you know, uh, the 91 Brown team. It was just inducted into the, uh, the Hall of Fame. It was great to see all those guys up there a couple weeks, a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, talk to us a little bit about your memories of just just uh, some of the guys on that team and, and how good some of the how good that team was. Yeah, that was, that was a uh, you know uh, that was a really good team. Uh, you know, Darren Lowe and Andy Andy Towers. I mean, Darren's in the National Hall of Fame. Uh, Andy could be in the National Hall of Fame. Uh, Jay McMahon had uh, you know a couple of first team All American middies. Uh, we were just solid all over the field. Your brother Neil was uh, was one of the attackmen on that team, and uh, uh, you know it was a group that unique talent-wise for a place like uh, place like Brown. And uh, you know we were early in the year. We had lost the year a couple of years before that. We had lost some close games, and uh, I remember early in the year we went down and we were down four or five goals to Loyola late in the game, came back and won. Uh, and that that game, I think, gave us a shot of confidence uh, that propelled that team, you know, over the course of the rest of the season. And uh, you know, and uh, um, it was a really good group to be in, to be involved with. And strangely enough, uh, uh, we had we had five lefts on our first extra man group on that team because uh, I was just talking to somebody about that recently. And uh, so we had to we had to invent. I think your brother was played out in a right-handed wing on the extra man, and he was only right. He was the only right-hander on the extra man. Everybody else was left-handed, and uh, and so it was it was a uh, it was an interesting it was an interesting group. And uh, you know we wound up. Uh, what happened was we go through the season undefeated. I think we finished thirteen and zero. And in those days, the top four teams got a bye. The bye didn't suit us. Uh, you know, in New England, you started your season later. And so you played more games in less time. And so we were a program that was used to almost playing twice a week, never mind once a week. And then we got to the, uh, 
We got to the end of the season. We had to take a weekend off for exams. Then we got a bye through the first round of the playoffs. And then we, then we played Maryland in our, in our first round game. It was the second round of the NCAAs. So we had been sitting for three weeks, clearly had lost our edge uh, early in the game, fell behind, uh, made a ferocious comeback, uh, couldn't quite close the gap. Uh, the kid in the goal, Kavovit for, um, for Maryland, uh, set the NCAA record at 32 saves in the game. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, we just, we just couldn't, we, we just couldn't score enough to, 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 to pull it out. Yeah. Well, it was an amazing group. Um, a year later, you moved on to the university of Virginia and, um, I know you've got some amazing stories, but what I want to, what I want to sort of focus on is sort of like, what was it like to go to, you know, to start a new program at a, at a, at a school like Virginia, you know, it's new in the sense that you're doing it. And then, you know, trying to get them over the hump to a championship, the elusive championship, it's so hard to win. And it took a few years, you know, and it took, you know, a lot of close heartbreaking losses with some unbelievable teams along the way. What was it like to sort of develop that culture and, and what kind of got you over the top? And was it really anything special or was it just kind of a matter of time? Um, we could spend a lot of time talking about this. Uh, uh, so I got to Virginia in the fall of 92. Um, I'll be honest with you, Jay, I was surprised. You know, I, I felt the way about, I felt about Virginia the same way that everybody else did and the way everybody always talked about Virginia, which is that just, Talented, you know, the word, when people describe the University of Virginia lacrosse program, the word talent is almost always in the first sentence. It's at least in the first paragraph. And I'll be honest with you, I think I left a better team at Brown than I inherited at, at UVA. I was surprised at that, you know. Uh, and it was a team that had, you know, needed to kind of get back to work a little bit, understand, accept the fact that they weren't as just couldn't just throw their sticks out there to beat people, had to get back to work to a certain extent. Uh, you know, and so uh, uh, that that took a little bit of a little bit of a transition. Uh, you know, but we had a really good first recruiting class. Uh, that first group that came in, uh, so that started in my second year uh, in '94, was Doug Knight and Michael Watson and Tommy Smith and uh, and uh, Brian Birch and a, a bunch of a bunch of really good players, uh, Jason Hart, a, b- a bunch of really good players, and uh, and so we the talent piece of it we began to fill in quickly, and we also began to get to work, you know, and so people always talk about, you know, we're going to change the culture and, and I'm a little bit cynical of some of that, some of that language. Uh, but we were starting to get to work and it was in my second year in 94 when we played Syracuse, the, Syracuse was the number one seed we were five. Uh, we actually went down to Carolina, beat them in Carolina in the quarterfinals in the days when the quarterfinals were played at the home sites, uh, the higher seed. And then, uh, Played Syracuse in the semifinals, down five goals in the fourth quarter, down two men to start the fourth quarter, come back and win the game in two overtimes. And, uh, and that was the beginning of turning things around, you know, and sort of getting the program uh, back to work. There were people, Virginia people, that had said to me after that game in particular, God, I didn't know we were capable of doing that. And so, uh, um, so we began to uh, – you know, put the pieces in place to be playing the way we wanted to play. You know, I, we always were, there was no reason why we couldn't be athletic and play fast and get up and down the field and did a, did a, did a number of things like that. Uh, you know, but we also got in the finals that year and, uh, down three in the fourth quarter, uh, come back, uh, come back in the fourth, send the game into overtime against Princeton, losing overtime at the NCAA finals, walking off the field, feeling like, uh, 
yeah, we're going to, we're going to, this is easy. We're going to win a hundred of these things. You know, uh, it's only my second year there. Uh, get back to the final four the next year, get back to the final four again in 90, in, uh, in 96, down three goals in the fourth quarter again, come back again, send the game into overtime. Uh, don't win the game in 96 in overtime again in the NCAA finals. And then like you, like you suggested, now you're left with, uh, now you're left with, uh, how do we get over this hump? You know, uh, how do we get this done? You know, you're racking your brain trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, I tell people all the time when you're asking coaches what they do in, in the office, uh, you know, during the day, we're always trying to build a better mousetrap. And so whether it's in the recruiting or trying to figure out a practice plan or an extra man play, you know, how do we do this better? How do we get over this hump? And so, uh, you know, 96, 97, 98, it begins to become a little bit frustrating that we haven't been able to win that final game. Um, and uh, you don't know exactly what the formula is. What do we need to do here in order to get this done? And uh, um, it was the summer of 98. And I'm sitting in my office uh, mid-July. Uh, you probably realize how hot it can be in Charlottesville in in the middle of the summer and I look out on the practice field there's a little hill on the side of a practice field and there's a player out on the hill running up and down the hill holding a 45 pound plate above his head and it was Tucker Radabaugh who was about to be a senior in that 98 that coming 98 98 99 season and Tucker who had won our outstanding leadership award the two previous years as both a sophomore and a junior pretty unusual yeah. program like ours uh, as talented as we could be and uh and so when we gathered that fall in the fall of 98, uh, uh, you know, the, there was just a little greater sense of urgency in terms of the way we approach things, you know, in Tucker's mind, we're getting this done, fellas, uh, you know, nothing's going to get in our way. And, uh, and so we wound up, uh, we made some commitments to behavior off the field and some things like that, that Virginia had never been willing to do before. And then we go on and, and almost like it's too good to be true, we win the championship in 99. That was our first national championship in 27 years for the university, uh, for the lacrosse program. And, uh, and frankly, I, I attribute a lot of the credit to, uh, to Tucker. You know, that, you know, you're wondering to yourself, uh, what do you need to do? Who do I need to recruit that's going to get us over the hump here? And we had that person, and we just needed the right set of circumstances for his, uh, his influence on the program to be able to flourish. And it began in that fall of 99, uh, fall of 98, extending into ni that 99 season. And, and we won that championship and, and, uh, and sort of got, you know, there, it got that, uh, relieved that pressure anyway, uh, in order for us to be able to go forward. In the 90s, it was truly uh, the Princeton era. And Bill Tierney had really revolutionized in a lot of ways the way defense was played. And everybody was just trying to figure out how to score goals and what to do. But just for a minute, before we move on to some of your other teams, talk about what that influence, what, what it was like and what everybody was trying to do as, as really lacrosse coaching turned a corner in the 90s big time. Yeah, I would tell you, you know, it's interesting, Jamie. Uh, you know, in that period of time be, between when I came to Virginia and we won that championship in 99, and particularly, right, you're right, Princeton's or Princeton beats us twice in overtime at the NCAA finals. And, uh, and so, and at the same time, Syracuse was a powerhouse. When I first got there, that was also the time of Syracuse. And so, you know, as a young new head coach at a program like the University of Virginia, I spent time thinking about 
do we want to be Princeton or do we want to be Syracuse? You know, uh, do we want to open it up more, you know, and, and play more like Syracuse? Or do we want to close it down and, uh, and play like Princeton? And the truth of the matter is that, uh, um, you know, I think for everybody, you, you've just got to be comfortable in your own skin. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I think we were probably somewhere in between there ultimately. And that's where, that's where uh, we, we, that's where we sort of uh, came to live. And, uh, but Princeton's influence was, uh, was significant. I, I would tell you that in my coaching lifetime, uh, uh, Billy, uh, Bill Tierney was the most influential coach uh, during the period of time that I, especially when I first began at the university of Virginia and, uh, um, you know, Billy took, uh, Billy set some, uh, set some rules at the defensive end of the field. You felt like he wasn't going to let anything at the offensive end, you know, put them in an awkward position on defense, that that was the first piece was to be in a manageable situation defensively. And, uh, you know, and so you had to spend time, you know, you had to spend time preparing for them. And it wasn't just a question of, of, uh, you know, just lining up and running up and down the field and having better athletes. Uh, you know, it, it, he, he, he made all of us think about what we were doing and, and how we were going to attack what they were doing, uh, especially for the programs that were right at the top and for whom beating Princeton was going to be a necessity if you wanted to be playing at the very end of the season. Yeah, no doubt. It was pretty amazing. And it was, uh, you're right, there, between the Syracuse and Princeton, the, the two different ends of the spectrum but interestingly I feel like Syracuse somehow naturally played with major discipline and poise when it actually came down to it when they were winning championships yeah they were like known as run and gun but man those guys would when it came down to it in championship time they they would have long possessions and they would play smart and all of a sudden you know they kind of figured it out a little bit um in a, in a very different way but it kind of came with a similar outcome which is discipline lacrosse Absolutely. I, absolutely, Jamie. That is the absolute truth is that, uh, you know, whether it was Roy or John Desco, uh, uh, I, 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 th I, I thoroughly respected what they were doing. Neither of those two guys got enough credit for what was going on in Syracuse at the time. Uh, and it may have been that they institutionalized chaos a little bit and chaos only to the extent that, uh, you know, they let those players play. They let they created an environment where those players could create things and use their imagination, and uh, and that takes a great uh, that takes a great uh, you know personal confidence in amongst the coaches to allow your players to do that. You know, our, our charge is to you know when I when I'm talking to young coaches now and they ask me what's the key to success, I say there's two things. One is having good players. And then two is creating an environment in which their talents can flourish. Uh, and, and that's what Syracuse did. You know, that's what Princeton did in their way. Yeah. And that's what Syracuse did in their way. And, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the Syracuse model, uh, like I say, the coaches never got enough credit. But I think people that are educated in the game, like yourself and like, like me, I think we fully appreciated what was going on in the Dome during that time. No question. It was really, it's really interesting. So let's skip ahead. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. Interesting. 
So let's skip ahead a little bit to maybe the greatest team I've ever seen, uh, the Virginia 2006 team. Talk about that team and, and, and kind of like what it was like going into that year, what you thought and what you guys were trying to do when you had this incredibly talented group. Um, you guys had won a couple of championships in the program by then, right? You've won two by that point. Yep. Uh, one in 03 and in 99. And, um, but that, that 06 team was pretty special, and I'd love to hear some stories about it and sort of your thoughts going into that year. Uh, well, it started uh, – probably started in, in the spring of 2005. Uh, we had a um, – uh, the group that was going to be seniors in 2006 were obviously juniors that year before. That was the incredible semifinal game that we lost to Hopkins in Philadelphia uh, with the, that big rain delay when that wind and the rain came in. We were down 6-0 in the second half, came back, went ahead late in the game. Syracuse came back and tied it. Uh, we go ahead again. We're facing off with 12 seconds to play. Syracuse ties it again, uh, wins in overtime. Uh, uh, not Syracuse, Hopkins yeah. wins in overtime. Uh, and, uh, and so we, got, uh, we had to get back on the bus and go back to Charlottesville. When we got back into Charlottesville where uh, the bus arrived in front of the athletic center and, uh, and nobody would get off the bus. And to a man, a uh, guy stood up, uh, stood up in the bus and said, uh, this will not happen again. You know, and so, you know, it's, it's the kind of sentiment that you're obviously happy to see in your athletes, but nothing guarantees anything. Uh, but that group, uh, that group, which was talented, very talented, uh, but was also disciplined. Uh, you know, I tell folks in general, the mantra going into that 2006 season was nothing gets in the way of the lacrosse. And so that doesn't mean we couldn't do community service projects. We had some great students on that team. You know, there were guys that were social and things like that. Uh, but, uh, but everything, uh, everything stood aside for that lacrosse team to be able to begin to reach its potential, approach its potential. And, uh, and there were just a couple of, couple of things that uh, kind of came together. Uh, a couple of players matured that year. Uh, you know, uh, uh, that, that team was, if you watch that team late in the year, especially as the season went on, uh, that was the, one of the most fundamentally sound teams I've ever been around. Uh, I can remember we played uh, uh, Tony, Tony Siemens' Towson team, and, uh, and uh, you know, I remember after the game him saying to me that, Dom, your team, you know, throws the ball harder than we shoot it. And uh, so our stick work was, was nearly impeccable. And the mantra – of, you know, overhand to the side pipes. I mean, that became our shooting credo. And uh, uh, Coach and Mark Van Arsdale had a great offensive uh, coach, uh, you know, and I had players that were willing to listen, talented players that were willing to listen. And if you go back and, like I say, you want to go back and see a cl shooting clinic, you watch that 2006 team. And so, uh, um, you know, we just uh, – we, we had balance all over the field. And then the, the truth is that the the – early part, the middle part of that season, when we started to kind of come to terms with who we were, was actually dominated by the Duke episode. And so uh, it that really occurred took, that same spring. It was 2006. And so it really took some of the heat off of us being, you know, at, that, at the point that that happened in probably mid-April, early to mid-April, we were probably in the 8-0 range or something like that, or 6-0. and And, you know, it was probably, you know, it was going into the playoffs before I can still remember uh, we finished the regular season undefeated. And, uh, 
and uh, Matt Pasquet being interviewed and, and one of the reporters saying to him, how do you, how do you give, how do you feel about being undefeated? You know, in other words, you're going to be undefeated if you, if you expect to win the national championship. And he said, uh, well, I never really thought about that. You know, I guess we're going to have to do that then, you know? And so, and that's what it was. It was sort of that, all the attention that was on that other episode allowed us to kind of, uh, finish our season without, without the, without the, you know, the heavy pressure on it of the press on us and all. And then we went into the playoffs and, uh, and, and we were ready, you know? And uh, so it was, it was a team that just uh, was, it was on the same page with, with, uh, with talented players at each position. We had, again, we had good balance throughout. Uh, the balance was amazing, honestly. I mean, uh, uh, your first midfield line uh, run through the run through with who it was. Our first midfield line was uh, well, Kyle Dixon, what, Kyle Dixon, Matt Pasquet, and uh, Drew Thompson used to go out together, and we had Drew was our one of our top faceoff guys, and so we used him about a third of the time facing off, and uh, so when he faced off, we would put Kyle Dixon on the wing, you know, and so Drew could manage the draw, and we'd have Kyle on the wing, and now we were attacking you quickly off the off one faceoffs because yeah. Drew was running on the first midfield anyway, and uh, and so we 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 got right after you and. Uh, and then Pasquet would, would come in off the bench, and, uh, you know, he was the perfect complement. Uh, Unbelievable yeah. off-ball guy. Yeah, it was a year in which uh, Kyle Dixon couldn't be covered by a pole, and so he could break you down up top, you know, uh, and he would – that's how we would generally start things. Kyle would start up top. He'd, he'd attack the pole off the top. Pasquet was the smartest off-ball player I've ever been around. He would almost – he would be happy to go inside early on put his guy in a position to be the first slide to Dixon. And then, uh, so that, you know, he would, then he would just begin to back out a little bit. And, uh, and uh, whether we, whether Kyle, I mean, Kyle would come off that dodge, when he, especially when he split to his right hand, uh, he would be looking for that, that righty to righty look to Pasquet across the field. Uh, but if it didn't get it there that way and it went behind to, uh, you know, we had uh, Ben Rubior and Danny Gladding and Matt Ward on the attack, uh, you know, so we could attack you from all those spots there, uh, you know, so. Um, yeah, we, I mean, I mean, Pasquet was not a great dodger. Drew Thompson was okay. He could attack against the short in particular, but we could attack your poles. And so we were, we were unusual that way. Yeah, pretty awesome. I remember uh, the beginning of that season, Denver at Virginia. Do you remember that? That was it. Was that the game on? We played that game on a Monday. We played it on a Monday on the turf. Yep. I remember that. Absolutely, do remember that, Jamie. That, that was our. Uh, that was really the first year that the University of Denver had a great season. We had, we had had a good 05, really great class of 05, and had a heartbreaking loss in the sort of what what became really the conference championship um, against Fairfield. And the next year, we had a whole new group of guys, and we kind of went to this pressure defense. Do you remember that? I did. Would you would uh, force me bring the goalie out? You know. Uh, uh, turn the Dodger back and uh, and bring the goalie out of the goal. And uh, I remember you and I having animated discussions about that, about whether or not uh, you could get away with that. Uh, you know, if you were, you know, at that time, and maybe it sounds a little pretentious, I'm saying to you, look, if you're playing an ACC schedule and you're playing against teams that are, you know, you know, uh, at that level, game in and game out, you know, I just didn't, I didn't, wasn't, I, didn't, I wasn't certain you could get away with that. Uh, but uh, but it was it was a clever idea, and, uh, and I remember that. Thing. I remember watching you guys practice, and uh, I remember watching the long poles throw balls across the field behind their back, and uh, and I think we talked about that also. You know, uh, uh, so uh, you know you 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 were always a forward thinker, Jamie. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about it, and I can remember lots of uh, lots of uh, lots of terrific uh, conversations. Uh, 
as, as we as, as we consider different ways of doing things. Yeah, well, you know, it's, the funny thing is, Dom, is it kind of came from my background of playing with you. I mean, you remember what Press Zero was, you know, yep. and Press Zero was Darren Muller, you know, has a matchup. We're going to shut off everybody and go pressure the ball. And, um, and, and we did that, Jamie, when we had when we had Mark Farnham, yeah. uh, we used to do that on man down. We, yeah. The ball would go out of bounds. We, we put Mark on the ball. We take the goalie out, leave the goal open. And uh, you could not run away from him. You know, Mark Farnham was, uh, and I, I tell people, I remember this distinctly, and so I'll always remember when people want to know when, that we won a year without a faceoff, and that year was 1979. That was Mark Farnham's junior year at Brown. And Mark Farnham uh, wound up as a second-team All-American. He was the Ivy League player of the year that year, and because there was no faceoff, because in that day they would, you'd put the ball in play at the midline. You were not allowed to throw it back into the defensive end. We would put Mark on the ball, shut off everybody else, and you just couldn't run away from him. And to, to this day, with all the wonderful athletes I've had an opportunity to work with, I would tell you that still Mark Farnham may have the quickest hands and feet of anybody I've ever been around. Amazing. He was a, he was a guy that never, had never played lacrosse before he got to Brown, barely played as a freshman, played about two weeks after spring break as a freshman, his sophomore year, I took him on the varsity. He played JV lacrosse as a freshman. Uh, I took him on the varsity as a, as a sophomore simply because of, of who he was athletically. Tried to play him when I could. His junior year, he was the Ivy League Player of the Year. And uh, It was like uh, the year without a Santa Claus, but it was the year without the faceoff? <laughs> the year without a faceoff. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, so uh, – uh, well, what I was, what, you know, the reason why I brought it up is because, you know, I've talked about this. I, I think the, the uh, being a coach and, and having a new program and trying to do something different. I mean, that's what I was trying to do at Denver at that time. I was trying to get over a hump. And you were doing the same thing at Brown when we would go with our Mantis 10-man ride and zombie pressure on man down and press zero to put pressure on people. And you're trying to get over a hump. And I sincerely believe that pressure can get you over a hump if you're, if you have the courage to do it. And um, it did get us at Denver. It got us over the hump in 05. We started pressuring and we got over a hump from being sort of top 25 to being top 12. And uh, it may not have gotten us to a national championship. Like I, I really wouldn't, wasn't going to disagree with what you were sort of saying about an ACC schedule, but what it did do though, was it, it helped us with our 50, 50 ball games. And I think it helped us at Brown the same way. I think that what you're doing there, Jamie, is that you're making a and, and you're making a statement to your team, yeah. which that we are not going to be dictated to. We are going to go out here and set the tempo and all. You know, I think that what has to happen in most programs is that you just need to have some balance. You know, I you know when we used to ten man ride at Virginia, uh, what I found was that it was particularly effective in the first half of the season. And then when in the second half of the season, when we were playing the ACC teams in particular, and people had a chance to watch us, and we would play an ACC team two twice or sometimes three times, you know, as we're going into the ACC tournament and the NCAA tournament, uh, that, you know, teams that were talented could just look at it and say, okay, fellas, here's what we have to do in order to beat this. And so we need to be able to adjust. And so I just think you can't uh, – it's hard to just, uh, you know, when, when, when we talk about, if you think you're going to 10 man ride or you're going to go zombie on man down and do it all the time. Yeah. Generally what happens, I tell people that generally the truth lies closer to the middle. You need to be able to have that tool, you know, but you also need to be able to do this other thing in order to be able to counterbalance. And that's part of the, 
of the uh, evolution, of the cat and mouse part of coaching, which is which is uh, you know which which I think for you and I we we, we really find to, to to be fun, you know. Uh, but but again, I, I would say to young coaches, uh, be bold, be bold. You're making it. You're not only giving you putting yourself in a position to perhaps win a game, but you're saying something to your own players, you know. Uh, you know, like I say, we went into some. You know, I, I wrote a piece about our 2003 national championship team, uh, the one, the one that Chris Rotelli was the was the captain of, and our Tuarton Award winner that year. And we went into that game and triple polled Hopkins in the. We had never shown it during the season. Uh, we triple polled them and uh, and didn't slide. Uh, put short sticks on two of their attackmen and decided we were going to take our chances and um, and we we won the game. You know, and we went to the the zone in 2011. Uh, you know, we had lost Matt Lovejoy, our best defenseman. We were struggling. We had just dismissed two of our more talented players from the team. And and I just, we're playing North Carolina. I didn't know how we were going to be able to cover Billy Bitter, you know. Uh, and so we're sitting in the office and I said, well, how about if we try to zone? And so we worked on it in practice for a couple of days. We were awful, you know, uh, and, and got a little, got a little glimmer of looking like we knew what we were doing right at the end of the week, right before the game. So we're playing on Saturday against Carolina. We're on ESPN, not ESPNU or two, ESPN on the mothership. And uh, we're going to play North Carolina and we're going to come out. And so we sat in the office and said, okay, do we have the nerve to do this? And we decided, okay, let's try it. And so we came out and played the zone that day and, uh, and, uh, and beat Carolina. I think we caught them by surprise. I think we caught a couple of breaks in the game, uh, but we beat North Carolina and went on to win the national championship. And, you know, and so, uh, um, and again, I think we, we benefited from not doing that until later in the season. So I think we played some teams, like we played Cornell in the playoffs that year. I don't think Cornell believed we were going to play a zone against them, that, that we needed to do that. We, were the, we had beaten Cornell earlier in the year, and then they hadn't lost the game the rest of the season. And, uh, and uh, so, uh, so uh, you know, I think uh, – you know, part of the fun of what we do is 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 uh, is is thinking of things that we think put us in a position to be successful, and then I would encourage people to be bold enough to to step up and try it. Um, I was going to ask you about 2011 and, and the zone and moving to that, and you know, it's such a copycat world. Um, you know, everybody I think would have thought, oh, everyone's going to go play zone. You know, that Virginia was able to just go out and plug this thing in and ride it right to a national championship. Um, I'm not sure that really happened. And now as we move into this uh, new era with the shot clock in men's lacrosse, and there's a lot of talk of zones, what's your overall take on, you know, the ability to kind of put that in and have success? Was it just like the perfect group of guys to be able to run a zone and that's how you were able to ride this thing? Or, you know, was it just, I guess it was pure necessity, but Talk a little bit about those thoughts. Yeah, uh, well, uh, at both ends of the field that year, you know, that at that moment when we went to the zone at the other end of the field, we dismissed perhaps our two most talented offensive players from the team. And uh, and so uh, what we went to on the offensive end of the field, and again, I give Coach Van a lot of the credit for this, and uh, and it's not that we didn't have any talent because we had Steel Stanwick still on the team, although he had been injured up until that point. But we went to the two-man game on offense, and and the, the deal was on offense was we told the players every time down still touches the ball and because everybody was concerned with who we were at this point 
you know, every player looked at us like, okay, let's try that, you know, and, uh, and then we would run whoever had the short stick on them would go behind the goal and uh, we would play two men in order to try to create a little space for steel. And, you know, in the national, we won the national championship that year. And in that game, steel had one assist in the game. Uh, and so, uh, but he had a lot of hockey assists that obviously don't come up in the stats and all. And so the players bought into that. And, and so we did something at that end of the field, which was unusual for us is that we held the ball a little bit, went to the two man game. And then at the other end, like, like you're describing, uh, um, you know, we lo- I, I mentioned we mentioned we lost our best defenseman at that point in the season uh, in the game against Maryland. Uh, Matt Lovejoy got hurt, had season-ending surgery, and so um, we we moved you know somebody else into the starting lineup. And what wound up happening that year in terms of the zone was that what you were implying, Jamie, is completely the case. Is that we had the perfect personnel to run a zone. You know, uh, we had we moved Bray Malfers from being a okay long stick midi into the middle of the into the middle of the zone in the crease and where we just really needed that guy to create havoc perfect role for him uh this the pole that came in the that started to play a little bit more was a boy by the name of Wyatt Melcher who wasn't a real physical player but he was very smart he had a very good stick so he could play that top spot uh you know and uh and so we didn't have a lot of long, short stick middies so we we saved them a little bit by 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 by, by playing the zone and and so it just worked for us. We had a bunch of players that were willing to talk to each other and were unselfish. And so, yes, born of necessity, but we also had, I think we had the per, almost the perfect grouping to make it happen. And so, you know, following that 2011 season, we win the championship. You know, I got, you know, a thousand requests to come and speak to people about a zone. And I, the first thing I would always be saying to people is, uh, you know, if you stink playing man to man, you are likely to stink playing the zone. You know, just playing the zone is not going to be enough. You know, by it's not going to be the cure all. You know, uh, you need to have these particular pieces in place. You need to have a goalie that can, that can, that can, that can save a ball. You know, because you're going to give up some shots. You need to have, you know, uh, people that are willing to talk to each other. Uh, you know, and you know, the certain things had to happen. We we had the we had the right grouping for it, and. Uh, and going forward after that year, uh, again, like we were talking about a little bit earlier, uh, it, was a, it was a tool for us. And so we used it selectively going forward after that 2011 season. And again, it was almost as if when we started playing zone and playing two men on offense, that it was like the beginning of the season because we only had one regular season game to go. And, uh, and then we were into the playoffs. And so we were showing people something that they hadn't. Like we played Maryland in the NCAA final game. When we played them earlier in the season, uh, we had not. We didn't play a zone. We never. We never played. They never saw us playing a zone, and so uh, so it, you know circumstances came together. So when people were giving me so much credit when the season ended for the, the grand scheme of things, I was saying, please, you know, uh, we were just we were just trying to get to tomorrow. You know, what's gonna what's gonna give us a chance tomorrow? You know, we have to play Carolina in this in this regular season game, we got to, you know, we got to go out you know, we got to do these different things. And, uh, and, uh, you know, just once in a while, thing, 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 things break for you a little bit. And I give the team credit for being very unselfish and being willing to go along with, with everything that, uh, that the coaches said, look, let's try this fellas. I think it suits who we are. That always matters. No doubt. I thought, um, I thought Mark Cockerton was a real spark plug for you guys that year too. He, he did. He absolutely did. And, uh, you know, he, uh, those guys, you know, Nick O'Reilly, Matt White, Mark Cockerton, uh, like I said, I, you know, I would still say that 
steel was the trigger there. You no know, no we would run a run that short stick back there. You know, teams would have to decide. You know, steel would run off the pick. Teams would have to decide how they wanted to play that. We would oftentimes then create some steel had no problem throwing the ball back to Nick O'Reilly, back to Matt White, back to Mark Cockerton, you know, who then could step in and make a play. And uh, and uh, so um, so I bring up the Mark Cockerton because he was a Canadian guy. Um, I loved his game. Uh, he was a little bit of a unique Canadian because he was kind of a go-to-the-goal dodging Canadian, whereas a lot of them are kind of more like figure finisher, you know, off-ball guys. But you've you've recruited a lot of Canadians over the years. Uh, people probably don't realize, but when I got to Brown, I mean, we must have had three or four. In fact, I run into these guys. I saw Gary Walker at the Minto Cup, his son, okay. at the Minto uh-huh. Cup this year, and I've run into – yeah, I've run into Monty Keast, uh, run into Kevin Antrim and all these old Brown guys. But uh, talk a little bit about your, you know, the recruiting of Canadians and, and, and um, you know, how you over, over time figured out how to use them. Yeah, you know, I went, uh, it was in my second uh, recruiting class at Brown. Uh, my first class was just, to this day, is probably still one, one of the best classes I ever recruited. Uh, but the second class had five Canadians in it. And uh, in those days, there was a field lacrosse tournament in Toronto in the fall. And uh, I went up to it for the, the first two years of the tournament. And there were, there were only a couple of college coaches there at that time. Uh, and to be, to be frank, the field lacrosse was horrible, you know. Uh, but you could still see things. You could see, you know, that players could play and they had skills. And, and uh, you know, I, I can still remember watching, you know, Kevin and Kevin Antrim and uh, Monty playing in some of those games. And the goal is just being atrocious, you know. And so, but you could still see that players were skilled enough to be able to, to be able to, to make plays and all. And so uh, we, did, we did recruit some of those guys, you know, beforehand. You know, it was – you know, it's it's interesting. With you know, you're talking about a creative spirit and the coaching a boldness. Uh, you know, I, I would say, and maybe it was my greatest strength was a boldness in the recruiting. You know, uh, you know, it, the key in recruiting in general, I think, is finding the the kind of people and players that fit into your institution. You know, uh, and then are going to help make you better as a team. You know, and so you know, my my background was as an athlete who came to the game late. I was always looking for you know, physical athletic kids, uh, you know, and then I would like to take it, you know, rather than that second tier player from Long Island or the fourth attackman from boys Latin, you know, if I could find a Canadian or I could find a Midwest player, uh, you know, I, I would, I would, uh, I would take a chance on those guys. And, uh, you know, uh, we've had, we've had a lot of, we had a lot of success with that over the years. And so the, you know, I just knew that the, the Canadian was a source. And like I say, that was before field lacrosse really was getting going. That was back in 1982, 1983. Uh, yeah. Before field lacrosse really took off in Canada, uh, you know. And so, uh, um, you know, I, I always enjoyed that. And, I, you know, I played some box. You know, I played some box in, back in the 70s you know, when I first started playing and when I went up on the, to the reservation. And, and so I was familiar with the game and, and so, uh, you know, I, again, you look and I, you know, I think you're still seeing it manifest itself. You know, uh, you know, the, the best field lacrosse players, the best U.S. field are still going to go to Virginia and Carolina and, and Hopkins and places like that. And so you look at the Jamie Monroe's, you know, when you first got to Denver and I look at Scott Marr and these guys that are not going to be not there staying. Look, I'm not taking the second level player from Baltimore. I'm going to go find somebody else, you know, uh, 
you know, to Scott's great credit, he's done a lot of things with the Native Americans in upstate New York. And, you know, you were, uh, you were looking for Canadian players before, again, before it really became popular. And, uh, you know, and so there was a, the next generation of coaches that came after me, you know, were not going to be satisfied with, with being, it was, it was almost like the Virginias and the, and the Hopkins of the world was saying, Hey, you know, mind your manners, Jamie, you know, mind your manners, Scott Marr. And you guys were saying, Hey, that sorry, that's not how it's going to happen. And, uh, and you guys got really, really interesting players. And, uh, and so it, it ratcheted up the recruiting and it's contributed to the growth of the game overall as much as anything else. Remember us on the phone one time in around 04, 05? Hey, you're like, <laughs> yeah. You're like, Jamie, I need it. I'm always like, hey, Don, tell me some players. Because every year, you know, I would get your scraps, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and even though I, you say I don't want the second-tier players, I also knew that you had an eye for some athletes that I used to – that might have been under the radar, particularly these prep school guys. I was thinking about – Andrew McDonald and Adam Swain that ended up in my class of 06. And we're nice players that came down to the Virginia lacrosse camp. And you're like, hey, Jamie, I'm always giving you guys. Give me a guy. I was like, all right, how about Garrett Billings? He's like, who's he? And that's all you told me. First off, I thought you hesitated at first. And then I said, uh, ah, you got one, Jamie. Give me that name. <laughs> that's and, uh, true. And you said, I said, all I'll tell you is Garrett Billings. And uh, so I had some contacts of my own. I knew that most of your secrets were on the West Coast. I had some contacts of my own out there called around. Well, first off, I looked at the, uh, the stats out there. Garrett Billings was the leading scorer on the best team, you know, in the, uh, in the Western Lacrosse uh, Association out there. And uh, so then I had, I knew somebody and I called somebody else's. I got a phone number and uh, called Garrett. And uh, I still remember this. I called Garrett and said, Garrett, this is Coach Starzy at the University of Virginia. And I said, have you ever thought about coming to school in the States? He said, yeah, I'd like to do that, you know, and uh, I said, Garrett, have you ever heard of the SAT exam? And in a very Canadian way, he said, yeah, I wrote that exam, uh, you know, a couple of months ago. I said, how'd you do? And in the days when you were only looking at verbal and math, uh, I, I swear, he said to me something to the effect of, I got a 1200. How's that? <laughs> and uh, I literally hung up the phone, called my secretary and said, get me a ticket to British Columbia. And I was out there within a week of that first conversation with Garrett. And, and this is, let me just, the, 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 the end of the story. So it was the last, so you gave me that name in August. It was the last game of the regular season out there. And they were going to play, the, his Langley team, which was undefeated, was going to be playing the team that they were going to play in the first round of the playoffs in that last game of the regular season. And Langley was holding out all their best players because they didn't want to get anybody hurt. It wasn't going to affect the seeding, the result of that final regular season game. And I called the coach. I said, look, I'm coming all the way out there. I have to see Garrett play. And uh, so Garrett was the only good player on his team that played. And he got killed the night I was there, you know. Uh, but just watching him in the warm-up and even watching him during the game, you could just see the way he moved and his skills and his knack for the play. I remember calling Coach Van Arzo and saying, Mark, this is a good one. You know, he uh, wasn't a big kid. He wasn't overly athletic but he just, uh, he had a certain knack about him. And now that he was, you know, we didn't even mention him on that 06 team. Right. You know, he ran on the second, he was the second midfield, frankly. He yeah. came in the second midfield. We put him down on the attack. We bumped Matt Ward out to the midfield. So now we're really creating problems for the other, matchup problems for the other team. And now Garrett Billings is filling the Matt Pasquet role in the second midfield. And, uh, and Garrett had, you know, he had close to 40 goals that year uh, in 06. It was a big part of the success of that team. And what a great kid, you know. Uh, I just, uh, we, we stay in touch regularly now. And, 
there's a boy and a young player at the University of Virginia, Peyton Cormier, who was one of my one of my last recruits, who uh, who I get, whose name I got from Garrett. And he said, Don, this is one of the best young players. I need you to trust me on this. And we made a workout for Peyton, and he's here at Virginia now. So I'm, I'm anxious to follow him. You know what? You once made a statement about recruiting that uh, that I never forgot, which was, you can recruit a guy on his worst day. And I think this is really important for you know, the parents and, and people that are listening here um, because, because I think everyone feels like you, you have to like have your best day or what you, or, or, or what a parent thinks is the best day. It may not be what you think is the best day. And so talk about like the way you would look at players and be able to, uh, you know, see them everything from warm up to anything else. Yeah. Well, there was, there was a lot of, there was a, there was a lot of subtlety to that, you know, I mean, I mean, first and foremost, I used to use always when people would say, what are you looking for? I would always use the word separate, you know, I'm looking for somebody that can separate from the people around him. Some ways, in some ways it's very obvious, you know, they can separate by just being faster or quicker or more powerful than other guys. But there are people like Steel Stanwick that separated from their peers on the field by how they saw the game. You could just see that he was seeing the game at a different speed than everybody else when you watched him play the first time. And, uh, you know, and so some of those things, like I say, even on your worst day, I can see you run, you know, the ball may not go into goal. I, I tell the story all the time when Chris Rotelli, Chris Rotelli came to camp at Virginia, probably uh, the camp before his junior year in high school, he came to the university of Virginia to come to camp. And as much as I had known the Rotellis for a long time, I really had, I don't think I'd ever seen Chris play. I really, I knew he had scored a lot of points in, in school at Moses Brown, but I didn't really know him as a player. He came to our camp that year and we both joke about it now, but, but if you ever see him and, and you talk to him about it, he'll remember he couldn't throw the ball in the ocean the week he was at our camp. I mean, he must've shot the ball a thousand times and it went in like twice, you know, uh, but you could just see the way he ran and the enthusiasm he brought to the process. And, uh, you know, he was like you in terms of his fitness level and, and, and the energy he brought to the field and all. And, uh, and so it was right after the camp, we said, Hey, Chris, we would love to have you. We offered him an opportunity and, uh, and he decided to come and all. And like I say, that was not his best performance at that camp. Uh, so we're, we're watching, uh, you know, we're going to be able to see the things that are going to make you successful at the next level, even if you don't have a big day of stats. Uh, yeah. But again, what you, were, what you were implying earlier with your question is, I'm telling people also, is that we're watching some of the subtle things that are going on out there. I mean, body language is really important. You know, do you, do you have a certain bounce in your step? Do you bring a certain joy to the field? Uh, do you celebrate in your teammates' success? Uh, you know, do you pay attention to the coaches during the timeouts? Uh, do you chase down a ground ball? You know, it's why early on when people would show me, send me highlight tapes, and I'd say, I don't really want to see you win every face-off. I don't want to see you make every save because I really want to see how you react when you don't win the face-off or when you don't make the save. Uh, you know, those kind of things are really important. And so, uh, you know, I, I tell, I generally tell parents, you know, don't overthink this whole thing. You know, uh, we want our put our kids in the best position to be successful. But for almost every player, it, it it's a little different. You know, and uh, you know, let your son or daughter just like I say, uh, put them in a position to be able to enjoy what they're doing. And then, you know, if they can if they can if they can bring that kind of sense to the field, 
whether it's a tournament or it's a practice or whatever, I think the coaches are going to be able to witness that. And that's what they're looking to bring to their program. Somebody that's going to make their life better, you know, someone who they're going to enjoy being around. Uh, I think that those kind of things are really important. Yeah, something special is another thing you would always say. You, you kind of already just said that, but looking for that, you said separating what separates you, what's that really special thing, the way you carry yourself or, you know, whatever it is. Um, what, what's, your, what's your take on, you know, what parents are getting pulled in so many directions because they, their kids have a passion for it. They want to support their kids. Um, there's just a million things to do. People are quitting sports to play more lacrosse and you can say, you know, that's crazy. And we all know that being a multi-sport athlete is, is what coaches love. But at the same time, you have to have a certain amount of skill also, you know, if you're a parent and you're not like, you know, uh, 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 someone who's, there's almost like an in group that people that have done it before, they kind of know what to do. And there's the people that like most of the people out there have no idea. And so therefore, what's your advice to the people that just, you know, their kids are into it and they want to support them? I would tell you, Jamie, it's just, uh, I'll be repeating myself a little bit. I would tell parents, and I tell them this all the time. I just say, don't overthink this process. You know, uh, the, the formula for success for a young player, it, it, there's no cookie cutter recipe for that. Uh, you, we could, there's, there's enough instances where we have, well, we would look at a, uh, a parental model, someone who's over appears to be overbearing, you know, works with their kid all the time, you know, gets them out, pushes them to specialized coaches and this and that. And there are players that, that succeed in that model. And then there are others that, 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 that don't, that, 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 that get burned out doing that same kind of thing. There are parents that, you know, players, you know, players that, you know, came, my parents didn't care about sports. My father was working two jobs. He was too busy. I just loved doing it and stuff. And uh, I didn't get any help from home. My father didn't even really begin to pay attention to my high school sports until I got to be in high school and all. Then he became an expert overnight, you know, it seemed, uh, you know, and so, uh, uh, you know, I would, you know, you want to say to people, uh, you know, uh, let your child tell you what, you know, what's what here, you know, you, you're not going to be able to, I don't believe you're going to be able to push them into being something that in the end they don't want to be, you know? Uh, and uh, so, you know, with the, uh, with the, all the clubs and all the information at, at, at your, at your fingertips now, uh, you want to avail yourself of that as much as you can. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, let your child, you know, figure some things out for themselves. And that's a, that's a hard thing to do. You know, to, to you, you want to do, let's, I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. Uh, but I don't think anybody can really quite define that. And, uh, and so, you know, at some point here, you want to be there for your child. You want to, you want to, you want to, you want to love them, you know, but you also at the same time, you're going to want to let them define for you, uh, what the path is going to be to, to their, to their maturing as an athlete and as a person overall. Right. Well, I mean, I think that there's no question you can't be pushing kids into something they don't really want. Um, you know, obviously, and there's probably a lot of that go- that goes on and the kids will eventually take care of that anyways. Um, there's a stat I heard on, I was listening to a podcast recently and it said uh, a player who would play major league baseball um, their kids have a 400 times greater chance of making the level of MLB. 
And it was just a stat that was interesting only because I think that it has to be driven towards by the, by the, by the kids. And, and, and everyone forgets about the fact you just have to be good enough anyways. I mean, like there's no getting around the fact that you have to be good enough. But what I'm, the conclusion I'm kind of bringing us to is that I think that having an idea of what it takes to be good enough, what it means to be good enough, to, to worry about more about being good enough, being a good enough student, being a good enough athlete, being a good enough skill-wise or IQ-wise are the things that I really think that people kind of miss out on. And, and what all they focus on is trying to get on the next good team, trying to play more tournaments, you know, trying to just do more, 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 more instead of just figuring out what's really, really important. And, and when I was sort of talking about the people that kind of know what they're doing, I think they realize that being good enough is the whole key. Right. And, and for those Major League Baseball players whose children go on to be Major League Baseball players, you know, I mean, there's also there's a genetic piece of that, no uh, yeah. that 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 parent, uh, you know, he's got that combination of fast, fast twitch fibers. That, oh, but people like recruiting coaches sons, too. You know, yeah, right. right? I mean, so that's like, you know, not necessarily not all those coaches have the same fast twitch fibers as the MLB. But it's kind of like I think coaches kind of have an idea of what what to do also. Right. And, and the modeling piece of it, you know, in, in the coaches, in the coaches uh, case in particular, uh, you know, a uh, boy grows up, he sees his, his dad's a coach, you know, uh, and they have a, they have a great life, you know, and they, the dad comes home and he's got a smile on his face every day from what he does. And then, uh, you know, I think it makes some sense that, uh, that, that they're going to be more inclined to follow in that, uh, in that, in those footpaths, uh, if the opportunity presents itself. Yeah. Well, Dom, uh, I really want to thank you for taking the time to come on. This has been an awesome conversation. It's been too long, and I'll see you uh, at the IMLCA, hopefully, this uh, upcoming week. This Jamie, week. Yeah, yeah, thanks a lot. It was great to, great to see you, and, uh, and great, great to catch up. I look forward to seeing you in a couple of days, and, uh, and we could do this again anytime, Jamie. It's a, really been fun. Awesome. We'll do. Take care, Dom. Thank you. Okay. The Phil Acrosophy Podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 Video Assessment Tool. There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son must utilize video to learn his game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3video.com.